Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, recording from New York. And I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director, recording from Tel Aviv. So as we enter the final weeks of the Israeli election campaign, Benjamin Netanyahu is really going into overdrive. He's fighting for re-election and he's fighting for his own personal freedom. Uh, He has these three corruption cases in which there are pending indictments. And so he sees re-election as the path to stay out of jail. And he's been pulling out all the stops. Uh, We've seen some pretty ugly rhetoric directed at his political opponents, at ethnic minorities, specifically uh, the Arab citizens of Israel. And uh, now he's taking a new angle on the campaign to try to eke out a little more of an advantage, and that is this American angle. It's no secret that Netanyahu has a very close relationship and a warm relationship with the Trump administration, a personal relationship at that. And so it was also unsurprising to see Netanyahu with U.S. Ambassador David Friedman and Senator Lindsey Graham on the Golan Heights on Monday, with Graham saying that he would lobby the Trump administration to confer recognition, American recognition, on the Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights, um, which Israel had annexed nearly 40 years ago in 1981. Yeah, so this is something that uh, that's really interesting, I mean, especially because of the timing. Um, as, as you know, uh, Netanyahu will be traveling to the United States um, in a week and a half from now uh, for APAC annual conference and there is an expectation um, this is there was also a report that this is what the uh, Gantz campaign expects is that the United States recognize Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights as kind of a way of boosting uh, Netanyahu's uh, electoral chances um, and obviously uh, we know that President Trump and meddling in the foreign election there's there, there's no connection between the two. Um, of course, of course there, something we would never even consider on this podcast. Now, since you brought up Benny Gantz, it's important to note that uh, Gantz has also talked about American recognition of the Golan. Yair Lapid, his number two, uh, made an attempt to lobby American legislators on this issue last year. Yeah, this was, yeah last year, exactly. This was something that actually, that actually Lapid, uh, in many ways, spearheaded. Um, trying to kind of uh, out right wing Netanyahu or outflank him on the right in a bizarre way, but obviously, I mean Netanyahu and Trump such a close close relationship, right? And 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 it's important to note that if there's any benefit to be reaped from this, Netanyahu will probably be the one to get it because he's the incumbent prime minister, so he'll be credited with brokering whatever arrangement with the United States. Now, taking a step back to understand why this would even be important or how we even got to this point. Um, Because the Golan Heights, uh, for our listeners, Golan Heights is is a strip of highland territory that Israel captured in the 1967 Six-Day War from Syria. Um, It annexed it officially in 1981. Annexation was not internationally recognized uh, legally even though it may not be relevant to to the facts on the ground, legally it's still part of Syria. Um, And the United States has never recognized it, just like any other country outside of Israel. 
Um, but it's not really a, a contentious emotional issue within Israeli politics the way, say, the occupation of the West Bank and the question of one versus two states are. So Netanyahu campaigning on this, Gantz campaigning on this, Lapid campaigning on this really infuses a sense of artificial urgency to what is otherwise a non-issue in Israeli politics. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, there were, uh, the Golan Heights were part of negotiations with Syria on multiple occasions. I mean, even uh, during Netanyahu's first term and Ehud Barak uh, made a special uh, attempt to reach an agreement. But since the Syrian civil war, um, that is kind of, uh, especially when you've had all sorts of uh, Islamic extremist groups on Israel's border, um, it's really be- it's it's become a consensus issue in Israel that it's unthinkable to uh, give back the Golan um, ever, um, and so that's something that's almost that's a consensus throughout the uh, the Zionist parties, maybe with the exception of of Meretz, but even Meretz talk about uh, down the road and and no time soon. Right, so, right, and there's no existential institutional, democratic, demographic issues associated with the Golan. Now, there are some people who paper over the fact that there were a lot of people who fled the Golan during the 67 war, um, somewhere in the the 100,000 range, who who fled the Golan during the war. um, And the Druze who live there have not all accepted citizenship, a majority have not accepted Israeli citizenship, um, and maintain... um, in affinity for, for Syria over Israel, unlike the Druze and the rest of Israel. But on the whole, it, it's not as, as nearly as highly populated as the West Bank. Um, there just aren't as many questions of national significance associated with it. So it's not something that many Israelis are thinking about. And frankly, it's not something that many Americans are thinking about. Um, you know, we're talking about American recognition of the Golan. Um, so Lapid was lobbying on this. He met with a bunch of legislators, American uh, American legislators, Republicans, and Democrats. Uh, but it's interesting, Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton, uh, Repu- both Republican senators, are the only people who really took him up on it. He met with Nancy Pelosi. He met with Elizabeth Warren. But it was only the Republicans who took him up on it. So even though the Golan is, in America, not an issue that many people are thinking about, uh, certainly I would question whether most Americans can place the Golan on a map. Um, Even though it's not something most Americans are thinking about, I think the Democrats are reluctant to affiliate in any way with the idea of conferring legitimacy on on Israeli annexation of any additional territory, even if it's something that's viewed as a non-issue. I I think that's part of it for sure. I also think uh, just especially Democrats, they don't want to get involved in this bromance between Netanyahu and and Trump. Uh, I think they view them both as uh as so uh kind of extreme and uh and populist and uh they just they want to kind of disconnect uh and that and that goes to the big bi- bipartisan divide that we that we talk about. Yeah, there there's 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 definitely there's definitely a Trump factor there. Because, again, the Golan is not something that most Americans are thinking about. But if the United States recognizes it under this administration, it's just going to be among a lot of Democrats tainted by association with the president. Whether or not it's an issue that most people would be naturally inclined 
to care about, it's going to have that Trump association. And and that could attach its own sense of artificial importance to the Golan issue within the United States. So there's a potential to turn something that was a non-issue into a controversy uh, in Washington. And that's something that Ambassador Friedman and Senator Graham and, and Cruz and Tom Cotton may be aware of. They're, they're probably eager to drive a wedge on this issue within the Democratic Party because they know it's a sensitive, broadly speaking, Israel is a sensitive issue within the Democratic Party because you have a, a small but vocal left flank of the party, people like Ilhan Omar um, and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, who, who are very visible, uh, vocal, and uh, up-and-coming uh, members of the party, they're, they're they're right now freshman representatives, and they are not the majority of the party, but they speak to a very engaged element of the Democratic base, and that's something that the Republicans are aware of, and they want to play on. And so taking this issue, which again was non-issue, something a couple months ago no Americans would be thinking of, um, and they can they can turn it into something bigger than it is, and there are already premonitions of that. Uh, we've seen yesterday that in the State Department's annual report, the United States is no longer using the term occupied to refer to the West Bank, and it referred to the Golan as, quote, Israeli controlled for the first time. So it's not full recognition of Israel's annexation of the Golan, uh, but it is a step closer to something more than what the United States position had been in the past. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you talk about how this is a non-issue that's become an issue. I mean, I think that in, that idea has has really been prevalent in these elections. I mean, the uh, the bigger issue which you spoke about, the West Bank um, and the Palestinian issue, is receiving almost uh, no attention, especially from the two parties uh, which are the parties that one of them will form the next government. Um, it's been pushed completely to the sidelines. And for something that is as that is of such great importance um, for the future of Israel, the fact is uh, the legalization of marijuana is getting more attention. Um, so it really it says something about uh, these elections. And I mean... For example, there was a debate uh, that I was at a few days ago um, put together by the Geneva Initiative, uh, which is a uh, organization that uh, advocates for a two-state solution. Um, and it was a debate on the future of the territories. And there were supposed to be representatives from all the major parties, um, from from Meretz to Labor to Kaholavan, uh to uh, the Likud and to the New Right. And at the last moment, uh, both uh, the representatives, the, MK, the MKs from Kaholavan and Likud decided to drop out, and they didn't even give a reason. So, I mean, it's something that they don't want to even go public on, which is really astonishing, considering the, the, the weight it carries um, uh, for Israel's future. Um, so that's also something to think about. 
Yeah, it, it's something that the major parties aren't talking about. Although, you know, it's important that you bring up that they had a representative at the debate from the new right party. And that, of course, was Caroline Glick. Um, the smaller parties, especially on the right, are have become very eager and very vocal about their position on the West Bank in this election. There are both, again, the small right-wing parties and special interest groups like the Sovereignty Movement uh, that are keen to put West Bank annexation on the national agenda in Israel. You saw yesterday Naftali Bennett saying very publicly uh, that Israel would annex Area C of the West Bank. Um, Naftali Bennett, again, is the leader of the New Right Party and uh, the sitting Education and Diaspora Affairs Minister. Uh, Yariv Levin, the tourism minister, cabinet minister in Netanyahu's government, uh, earlier in February saying basically the annexation wasn't a question of if, but when and how. So Israel on the right, and especially the further to the right you get, uh, there's a growing certainty surrounding West Bank annexation. And the more enthusiastic proponents of that policy, especially in these smaller right-wing parties, are eager to put it on the national agenda. So another element of that playing into this Golan discussion is that putting a discussion of Golan into American politics is almost a distraction away from the policy that the Israeli right is pursuing that will have much more far-reaching consequences for Israel, for the Palestinians, and for the broader Middle East region in terms of their relations with the Arab states, in terms of the Arab state relations with the United States. Um, so that's something definitely to keep an eye on in the election. Yeah, campaign. no, of course. And you're right about the the further right when you go, the more it becomes, uh, I mean, okay for during this campaign to talk about uh, annexation. Um, annexation did get a lot of play from Likud, uh, lawmakers and people running in the Likud primary, um, but that was that was in February, um, and that's because the settler movement have a very, uh, they have a a lot of uh, there are very strong blocks of settlers that vote in the Likud primary. So as part of campaigning, a lot of uh, they demand of these candidates to promise uh, that they'll uh, support annexation or support sovereignty, however you want to call it. Uh, two words that, that have the same uh, implication. Uh, but then after the primaries, uh, you hear a lot less about annexation from the Likud, um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, one, I mean, one major reason is that the vast majority of Likud voters in general elections and of Israelis uh, are not in favor of annexation whatsoever. And Netanyahu is not a proponent of annexation, but there is a fear that he may be, because of his weak political standing, that he may be pulled by these extreme right-wing parties to take such a step. And it's a, also a way for these extreme right-wing parties, such as the New Right and the United Right-Wing Party, to show that they're more right-wing than Netanyahu uh, and a way to kind of get uh, to pull some votes from him. Um, 
So they need to do what you said to demonstrate that they're different from Netanyahu in a measurable way or in a meaningful way so that voters have a reason to cast their ballots for them because otherwise uh, they might be asking, why shouldn't I just vote for Netanyahu? And that's not good for these small right-wing parties. It's frankly, it's not good for Netanyahu who needs these small right-wing parties in the Knesset in addition to Likud, because he needs partners with which to form a coalition. It's it's a little frightening to see this happening in the election uh, with a very permissive United States administration watching from the sidelines, because again, when you have the U.S. ambassador up on the Golan Heights, he's essentially volunteering himself to be in the next Likud campaign ad. There, there was a Likud ad that was just clips of Trump from 2013 and a couple more recent trips Uh, clips from a press conference in uh, Vietnam, uh, where it's just Trump talking positively about Netanyahu. A strong prime minister is a strong Israel, and you truly have a great prime minister. Netanyahu, Yamin, Chazak. So Netanyahu has been really eager to campaign on the idea that he's improved relations with the United States, that he has this close personal relationship with the American president. And so uh, when you have the footage of the American ambassador touring around with the prime minister, uh, you know, Friedman has to know and Graham has to know that they're going to end up in a campaign ad. Um, and, uh, you know, this is this is all going on, like we've discussed in the context also of discussing annexation. There, there was an interview with David Friedman in the Washington Examiner, where, where he talks about increasing Palestinian autonomy, uh, but there still isn't any talk of a Palestinian state necessarily or two-state solution, which, of course, have been the traditional American position for the past two decades. Yeah, so I think we can call this a unofficial endorsement of Benjamin Netanyahu by the U.S. president, and it could be an endorsement that even becomes official when Netanyahu uh, visits Washington. Um, you spoke of that ad uh, that Netanyahu put out showcasing his relationship with Trump. Uh, it also features a endorsement from uh, Trump from before Trump was president. Uh, this was uh, a earlier campaign, I believe it was a 2013 uh, campaign, where he just says that Netanyahu is the best uh, candidate and Israelis should vote for him. Um, so obviously follow that. Uh, that's coming up. Uh, I mean, the APAC policy conference is in a week and a half from now, and there will be a lot going on. Uh, Netanyahu will be there, and I assume he will receive a red carpet welcome from the president. Benny Gantz, uh, the main uh, contender to Netanyahu, will also be there. Um, and I think he will have his work cut out for him. It's his first big... Uh, speech on the foreign policy stage. I mean, he also spoke at the Munich Security Conference, but this is a different league. Um, And it is a place where Netanyahu is super comfortable, and it's a bit of uh, foreign territory for for Gantz. So, uh, yeah, Netanyahu has a little bit of a home field advantage when he's working with APAC because, I mean, he's the incumbent prime minister. He's very popular with APAC's audience. He's very comfortable speaking in uh, an American-accented English. And that's not to say that Benny Gantz can't speak English, but but there's just something... We haven't heard Netanyahu his American built. accent. I mean, we haven't heard Gantz's American accent yet. 
and he he didn't go to he didn't go to elementary school in Philadelphia either. So Benjamin Netanyahu is just very comfortable with that audience, and that audience is very comfortable with him. He's he's built up this reputation. Um, he's very popular. He speaks in a way that I think is familiar and appealing to a lot of the people who are going to APAC. So uh, I think Gantz has a lot of things going against him when he's there. Um, some people have questioned the wisdom of Gantz going to the APAC conference at all, uh, whether he would be better off campaigning at home at a time when the prime minister will be abroad because there isn't as much that Gantz can achieve when he's in Washington. Uh, it's unlikely that Gantz will uh, have any invitation to the White House, whereas Netanyahu is scheduled to be meeting with Trump. So there's just a lot of this trip that will come out positive for Netanyahu, and there aren't the same guarantees for Benny Gantz. And so that's why some people have raised questions about whether or not he should even be coming to D.C. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a, it's definitely a risk for Gantz. Um, I think part of the calculation is um, he has uh, Yair Lapid, who's going to stay in Israel, from what I've heard. And also he has uh, Ashkenazi and Yalon, who will also be in Israel. Um, so he has that. Um, at the same time, um, yeah, he's obviously taking a risk. A lot of people have, uh, have wrote articles and analysis about why he's... Uh, making a mistake, um, but only time will tell. And uh, uh, the Lavan campaign has kind of uh, stumbled a bit since the unity uh, agreement was reached between uh, Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid. Um, but, uh, I mean, yesterday, uh, Yair Lapid was appointed to be in charge of the campaign. And uh, I think that's something that, from, from their perspective, is a, is a good decision. Uh, Lapid is the only one of the of the four that has experience um, running a campaign, and he's done uh, incredibly well in both campaigns. The 2013 campaign, he was the surprise of the election, uh, finishing with 19 seats, and he surged in the polls in the past in the last three days of the campaign. And in 2015, after what many is the majority of Israelis describe as he he had a uh, he was a terrible finance minister at least that was the perception uh, I'm not talking about his actual performance um, but he was expected to finish up like his father who did well in one election and then uh, was unable to even enter the Knesset um, what he uh, did is he, he finished at eleven seats and that was a another huge accomplishment so it makes sense that he's leading the campaign. And we'll have to pay attention and focus to how how the Kaholavan campaign changes now that Lapid is in charge. And uh, with that, let's talk about where we're at with uh, the polls. So uh, things are very interesting. We had, uh, I mean, I think it was almost two weeks ago uh, when there was the uh, announcement by the Attorney General that Netanyahu would... It was two weeks ago, exactly, yeah. as of this recording. Um, yeah, so uh, when Attorney General Avichai Mandelbrit uh, announced that Netanyahu would be charged, uh, or he recommended that Netanyahu be charged in three uh, different cases, um, people kind of said that that would be a turning point. Um, and we saw the polls. Uh, there was really there was a, a shift, and for the first time we saw that 
the uh, center-left Arab bloc was bigger than the right-wing bloc. Um, and we spoke about uh, why that may have happened, and we also saw Kahol Avan uh, jolted up by a few seats. Um, but that, we also, we warned people that that was also due to a lot of smaller right-wing parties not passing the threshold in these polls. And what we've seen is the Likud slightly bounce back, um, and the right-wing bloc bounce back as well. Um, but it's hard to tell whether that's an actual change uh, between the blocs, or it's just that a few smaller parties that had dropped below the threshold have now uh, are now treading slightly above it. Uh, one big example is Israel Betenu, uh, former defense minister of Viktor Lieberman's party, which uh, was... Uh, in almost every poll, dropped below the threshold. And now we see some polls with uh, Israel Betenu above. And the other big surprise is Zeut Party, uh, which is headed by former Likud MK Moshe Feglin. It's a party with very uh, libertarian economic views, um, but it has a very uh, right-wing security diplomatic agenda. And it's a party that's focused on like individual freedoms a very extreme right-wing platform. It talks about the what they what they call incentivized transfer of the Palestinians from the West Bank, which is, I, I think, a sanitized term for, frankly, ethnic cleansing. Which I sorry, which I think is a sanitized term for ethnic cleansing. They, they would essentially bribe as many Palestinians as possible to leave the West Bank. Well, I'm sure Moshe, I'm, I'm sure Moshe Feglin would would politely. Dis- disagree, but yes, the idea there is. I mean, it's a super, uh, super right wing uh, plan to uh, to pay a ton of money to Palestinians to leave, and, while giving them the opportunity a very difficult path to citizenship, which uh, seems uh, a bit crazy and and far fetched. Um, he also has. Uh, he advocates that the Temple Mount return to uh, Israeli Jewish control. And we saw what happened when Israel put up metal detectors on the Temple Mount. Just imagine what would happen if uh, an idea like this would come to fruition. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of things that he has decided not to focus on, but he talks about that these are his beliefs. And it's something that uh, a lot of uh, the mainstream parties are now putting attention to um, what he has made the kind of the headline of his campaign has been uh, legalizing marijuana. Um, and that's something that he he kind of he saw that there was a smaller party, the Green Leaf Party, that was not running this election. Usually they get about one percent of the vote. Um, and so he capitalized on that issue. He's brought a lot of young voters to support him. And even voters that have voted Meretz, Labor, and Hadash in the past. So this is something that's really interesting. You see, like a lot of one-issue voters coming to him. You have some voters coming to him from the right, um, but we'll have to see if he really does pass the threshold. Um, he also says that he's not in anyone's pocket in terms of right-wing block uh, versus center-left block. Um, this could be uh, something that is just a strategy. Uh, to keep those left-wing oriented people who are voting for him, um, or he could be sincere. He does claim that uh, 
it was right-wing prime ministers that have given up more land than left-wing prime ministers in Israel's uh, history. So I have to watch that. I would put special attention in the next uh, few days and as you look at uh, our polls on our 120 project about which parties are hovering around uh, the thresholds. Um, I mean, the- right, because I, I, I would caution listeners in terms of how much weight you apply to the I would caution w- listeners in terms of how much weight you apply to the polls that when you have a party hovering around the electoral threshold, again, the way the electoral threshold works is that's the minimum percentage a party needs to receive of the national vote in order to get any seats in the Knesset. And so the current percentage, 3.25%, translates to about four seats. So if you see a party right at four seats, well, if they get just a couple thousand fewer votes or a couple thousand more votes, that could be just tenth of a percentage point, then that's four seats, eight seats that could go to the right-wing block or could be taken away from the right-wing block. And that's the result of a couple a couple of thousands of voters, which is not really many at all in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so, so you're really looking at a big change um, being credited to a, a relatively small group of people. Yeah, that's true. It's a relatively small group of people, but also it's important that we point out that these are only based on polls. And if we look at polls, most uh, polls uh, done in Israel are internet polls, and they uh, have between 500 and 700 participants. So we're talking about one or two people who are uh, uh, deciding uh, whether a party passes the threshold here or not. And we are also not including the about 30% of people polled who don't know, who they don't, they don't even get counted in these polls. They're undecided voters. Um, so those are two important right. things to, to pay attention to. Uh, poll, polls, though, have, polls have a, have a, a impact, though, I think, on how people vote. There, there's a really good article by Dahlia Scheinlin in, in 972 magazine about the impact of polls on elections. And you know, she talks about, especially in a system where you have an electoral threshold and there is a prospect that your vote could essentially be wasted, that if your party doesn't pass the threshold, then uh, people may be more or less inclined to vote for a certain party because they either think their vote will be wasted or they attach extra urgency to their vote because they need to vote for that party in order to get it over the threshold. So, yeah, I I think you do add an important caveat that these are just polls, uh, but people people are probably paying attention to them and and thinking about how that's going to – play with their own yeah, votes no, that, on That's 9th. true. I mean, in terms of statistical like accuracy, I would say that there's a question mark that people should place next to them. I mean, they're an indication, but they're not uh, they're not what the end results will, will be. Um, and yeah, at the same time, um, when a party jumps above the threshold, like Zeut did, uh, they got a ton of media coverage. A lot of people are talking about them. Obviously, helps. It changes how people talk about uh, the election in media, like in Israeli media, which is obviously informing a lot of people. You'll remember that in 2015, um, there's a law in Israel that it's four days before the election that polls must, they can't be publicized. In the last polls, you had uh, Bougie Herzog and Sipi Livni and the Zionist Union ahead of uh, the Likud. And Netanyahu really used those last four days to surge and to say, look at the polls, this is a real danger, I'm going to lose control of this country unless all of the people on the right vote for me. 
And what we saw is a uh, right-wing voters to the right of Netanyahu really flocked to him and uh, uh, the Jewish home in Naftali Bennett. You, you might, you might say that right-wing voters, uh, right-wing they voters drove, were coming drove, to the polls in droves. droves, droves yeah. Yeah. I knew what joke was coming. I knew what joke was coming. And uh, uh, which speak, speaking of speaking, that joke, I know of, exactly what you're going to say. There is no, a go, new. Go, there's go, a new. Go. Yeah. So there is a new poster uh, from uh, Hadash and Tal to uh, predominantly Israeli Arab parties um, who are running on the same list together. And uh, it has the party leaders, Ayman Oda and Ahmed Tibi, standing in front of buses because, as we all know, uh, Netanyahu said that the left the left wing were busing Arab voters to the polls in droves on election day. That was his infamous and uh, racist election day appeal. And so they tweeted out this poster, and then Netanyahu retweets it, saying, only I can prevent a government uh, in which Ahmed Tibi and uh, Ayman Oda, in which the Arab parties are brought in under Benny Gantz, proving that Netanyahu is not only comfortable with race baiting, he's also totally humorless, and, and, and I think missed the joke there. Uh, so... Uh, that's that's probably I think when we look back on this campaign that that poster may be the high point. So yeah, and obviously I think yeah Netanyahu has showed I mean he showed it in 2015 with that comment and even more recently with his comment about uh, minorities uh, in Israel um, that he is in a position where his political survival um, is really above anything and he's willing to. Do pretty much whatever he can uh, to try to maintain and hold on to power. Um, so we'll see how it plays out. And we're going to close out this episode with that promising outlook on the election. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Israel Policy Pod, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>